an imagined order. The food surpluses produced by peasants, coupled with new transportation technology, eventually enabled more and more people to cram together, first into large villages, then to towns, and finally into cities, all of them enjoyed together by new kingdoms and commercial networks. Yet in order to take advantage of these new opportunities, food surpluses and improved transportation were not enough. The mere fact that one can feed a thousand people in the same town or a million people in the same kingdom does not guarantee that they can agree how to divide the land and water, how to settle disputes and conflicts, and how to act in times of drought or war. And if no agreement can be reached, strife spreads, even if the storehouses are bulging. It was not food shortages that caused most of history's wars and revolutions. The French Revolution was spearheaded by affluent lawyers, not by famished peasants. The Roman Republic reached the height of its power in the first century BC, when treasure fleets from throughout the Mediterranean enriched the Romans beyond their ancestors' wildest dreams. Yet it was at that moment of maximum affluence that the Roman political order collapsed into a series of deadly civil wars. Yugoslavia in 1991 had more than enough resources to feed all its inhabitants and still disintegrated into a terrible bloodbath. The problem at the root of such calamities is that humans evolved for millions of years in small bands of a few dozen individuals. The handful of millennia separating the agricultural revolution from the appearance of cities, kingdoms, and empires was not enough time to allow an instinct for mass cooperation to evolve. Despite the lack of such biological instincts, during the foraging era, hundreds of strangers were able to cooperate thanks to their shared myths. However, this cooperation was loose and limited. Every sapiens band continued to run its life independently and to provide for most of its own needs. An archaic sociologist living 20,000 years ago who had no knowledge of events following the agricultural revolution might well have concluded that mythology had a fairly limited scope. Stories about ancestral spirits and tribal totems were strong enough to enable 500 people to trade seashells, celebrate the odd festival, and join forces to wipe out a Neanderthal band, but no more than that. Mythology, the ancient sociologist would have thought, could not possibly enable millions of strangers to cooperate on a daily basis. But that turned out to be wrong. Myths, it transpired, 
are stronger than anyone could have imagined. When the agricultural revolution opened opportunities for the creation of crowded cities and mighty empires, people invented stories about great gods, motherlands, and joint stock companies to provide the needed social links. While human evolution was crawling at its usual snail's pace, the human imagination was building astounding networks of mass cooperation, unlike any other ever seen on Earth. Around 8500 BC, the largest settlements in the world were villages just such as Jericho, which contained a few hundred individuals. By 7000 BC, the town of Kataloyok in Anatolia numbered between 5,000 and 10,000 individuals. It may well have been the world's biggest settlement at the time. During the 5th and 4th millennia BC, cities with tens of thousands of inhabitants sprouted in the Fertile Crescent, and each of these held sway over many nearby villages. In 3100 BC, the entire lower Nile Valley was united into the first Egyptian kingdom. Its pharaohs ruled thousands of square miles and hundreds of thousands of people. Around 2250 BC, Sargon the Great forged the first empire, the Akkadian. It boasted over a million subjects and standing army of 5400 soldiers. Between 1000 BC and 500 BC, the first mega-empires appeared in the Middle East. The late Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, and the Persian Empire. They ruled over many millions of subjects and commanded tens of thousands of soldiers. In 221 BC, the Qin Dynasty united China and shortly afterwards, Rome united the Mediterranean basin. Taxes levied on 40 million Qin subjects paid for a standing army of hundreds of thousands of soldiers in a complex bureaucracy that employed more than 100,000 officials. The Roman Empire, at its zenith, collected taxes from up to 100 million subjects, this revenue financed a standing army of 250,000 to 500,000 soldiers, a road network still in use 1,500 years later, and theaters and amphitheaters that host spectacles to this day. In figure 16 is a stone stella inscribed with the Code of Hammurabi, circa 1776 BC. Impressive, no doubt but we mustn't harbor rosy illusions about mass cooperation networks operating in pharaonic Egypt or the Roman Empire. Cooperation sounds very altruistic, but it's not always voluntary and seldom egalitarian. Most human cooperation networks have been geared toward oppression and exploitation. 
The peasants paid for the burgeoning cooperation networks with their precious food surpluses. Despairing when the tax collector wiped out an entire year of hard labor with a single stroke of his imperial pen. The famed Roman amphitheaters were often built by slaves so that wealthy and idle Romans could watch other slaves engage in vicious gladiatorial combat. Even prisons and concentration camps are cooperation networks and can function only because hundreds or rather thousands of strangers somehow manage to coordinate their actions. Here on figure 17, the Declaration of Independence of the United States, signed 4th of July, 1776. Declaration stone engraving, courtesy of the National Archives and Records Administration. All these cooperation networks, from the cities of ancient Mesopotamia to the Qin and Roman empires, were imagined orders. The social norms that sustained them were based neither on ingrained instincts nor on personal acquaintances, but rather on belief in shared myths. How can myths sustain entire empires? We've already discussed one such example, Puget. Now let's examine two of the best-known myths of the history, the Code of Hammurabi of 1776 BC, which served as a cooperation manual for hundreds of thousands of ancient Babylonians, and the American Declaration of Independence of 1776 AD, which today still serves as a cooperation manual for hundreds of millions of modern Americans. In 1776 BC, Babylon rather was the world's biggest city, the Babylonian Empire was probably the world's largest, with more than a million subjects. It ruled most of Mesopotamia, including the bulk of modern Iraq and parts of present-day Syria and Iran. The Babylonian king was most famous today was Hammurabi. His fame is due primarily to the context that bears his name, the Code of Hammurabi. This was a collection of laws and judicial decisions whose aim was to present Hammurabi as a role model of a just king, serve as a basis for a more uniform legal system across the Babylonian Empire, and teach future generations what justice is and how a just king acts. Future generations took notice. The intellectual and bureaucratic elite of ancient Mesopotamia canonized the text and apprenticed scribes continued to copy it along rather long after Hammurabi died and his empire lay in ruins. Hammurabi's code is therefore a good source for understanding the ancient Mesopotamians' ideal of social order. The text begins by saying that the gods Anu, Enlil, and Marduk, the leading deities of the Mesopotamian pantheon, appointed Hammurabi 
to make justice prevail in the land, to abolish the wicked and the evil, to prevent the strong from oppressing the weak. It then lists about 300 judgments, given in the set formula, if such and such a thing happens, such is the judgment. For example, judgments 196-9 and 209-14 read, 196, if a superior man should blind the eye of another superior man, they shall blind his eye. 197. If he should break the bone of another superior man, they shall break his bone. 198. If he should blind the eye of a commoner, or break the bone of a commoner, he shall weigh and deliver sixty shekels of silver. 199. If he should blind the eye of a slave of a superior man, or break the bone of a slave of a superior man, he shall weigh and deliver one half of the slave's value in silver. 209. If a superior man strikes a woman of superior class, and thereby causes her to miscarry her fetus, he shall weigh and deliver ten shekels of a silver for her fetus. 210. If that woman should die, they shall kill his daughter. 211. If he should cause a woman of commoner class to miscarry her fetus by the beating, he shall weigh and deliver five shekels of silver. 212. If that woman should die, he shall weigh and deliver thirty shekels of silver. 213. If he strikes a slave woman of a superior man and thereby causes her to miscarry her fetus, he shall weigh and deliver two shekels of silver. 214. If that slave woman should die, he shall weigh and deliver twenty shekels of silver. After listing his judgments, Hammurabi again declares that these are the best, quote, these are the best decisions which Hammurabi, the able king, was esta has established and thereby has directed the land along the course of truth and the correct way of life. I am Hammurabi, noble king. I have not been careless or negligent toward humankind, granted to my care by the god Enlil, and with those shepherding the god of Marduk charged me. Unquote. Hammurabi's Code asserts that Babylonian social order is rooted in universal and eternal principles of justice dictated by the gods. The principle of hierarchy is of paramount importance. According to the Code, people are divided into two genders and three classes, superior people, commoners, and slaves. Members of each gender and class have different values. The life of a female commoner is worth 30 silver shekels, and that of a slave woman 20 silver shekels, whereas the eye of a male commoner is worth 60 silver shekels. The Code also establishes a strict hierarchy within families, according to which children are not independent persons, but rather the property of their parents. Hence, if one superior man kills the daughter of another superior man, the killer's daughter is executed in punishment. 
To us, it may seem strange that the killer remains unharmed, whereas his innocent daughter is killed, but to Hammurabi and the Babylonians, this seemed perfectly just. Hammurabi's code was based on the premise that if the king's subjects all accepted their positions in the hierarchy and acted accordingly, the empire's millions inhabitants would be able to cooperate effectively. Their society could then produce enough food for its members, distribute its effic- eff- efficiently, protect itself against its enemies, and expand its territory to as to acquire more wealth and better security. About 3,500 years after Hammurabi's death, the inhabitants of 13 British colonies in North America felt that the King of England was treating them unjustly. The representatives gathered in the city of Philadelphia, and on 4th of July 1776, the colonies declared that their inhabitants were no longer subjects of the British crown. Their Declaration of Independence proclaimed universal and eternal principles of justice, which, like those of Hammurabi, were inspired by divine power. However, the most important principle dictated by the American god was somewhat different from the principle dictated by the gods of Babylon. The American Declaration of Independence asserts that, quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, unquote. Like Hammurabi's Code, the American founding document promises that if humans act according to its sacred principles, millions of them would be able to cooperate effectively, living safely and peacefully in a just and prosperous society. Like the Code of Hammurabi, the American Declaration of Independence was not just a document of its time and place, it was accepted by future generations as well for more than 200 years. American school children have been copying and learning it by heart.